You may have heard a, a theme in some of these songs regarding our witness and our salvation. Fits quite well with this passage of Scripture from Luke 9 regarding Jesus sending out the twelve. The call to evangelize is oftentimes difficult, right, in our antagonistic culture. In fact, we don't face nearly as hard of a task as those in the UK, where it's somewhere in the range of 1% to 2% of the population would even consider themselves Christian. And yet, we still fear being mocked. We maybe think that evangelism is ineffective, right? We think that there's not much hope that the people we've, you know, we've already tried to talk to them and they didn't listen to us. So, you know, what makes us think it's going to be any different this time? And yet, if you think about it, all of the arguments that we use, that we come up with, certainly applied in the early church. It certainly applied to the 12 apostles, right? The challenges, the fear of being mocked, the ineffectiveness of their message, the Maybe even the assumption that, it was, that it's someone else's responsibility. And I mean, how much more so with the 12? They're around Jesus. Like if someone asks a question, who, are, who am I to say something when you got Jesus right next to you? Let him do all the talking. Right? And so you, we start to kind of excuse ourselves with that. Well, let the ministers or let the leaders or the evangelists, the elders do the evangelizing Obviously, to a much greater degree, the challenges were there um, for the 12 apostles. And yet, the one who sends them out ensures the effectiveness of their message, just like he sends us out and ensures the effectiveness of our message. The results inevitably will be hardened and softened hearts. Some will receive it joyfully, others will will despise the message, right? They'll reject it. That some will welcome it, and others will reject it. Second uh, Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 through 16 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Notice that. We're, we're an aroma of Christ that aroma doesn't change, but it smells differently to those who are perishing and those who are being saved. To some, it's a, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And so at the end, we come to recognize that it, it is out of our hands. Evangelism is beyond us. Right? There it's always going to be a fearful thing. It's always going to, going to be uncomfortable. It's always going to feel like we're going against what the culture wants us to say. The gospel has always produced those results. And so although there's no apostolic succession, we, we don't believe that, that anyone today is walking around as having the same power and authority as the apostles. And so some have said, well, you know, really that job that Jesus gave to them is also reserved for the apostolic age, right? Anything that he, any, any command he gave to them, but that would not be the case, right? If you 
Look at John chapter 14, verse 12. We read, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So because Jesus ascended to the Father, he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of his people, and, and because we have the Holy Spirit, he will do a work. Christ continues to do that work through us by his Spirit. Right? He continues to open the eyes of the blind. He continues to, to give ears, <laughs> give them hearing when they've been deaf, spiritually deaf. He allows the, the mute to speak his praise. These are all works that we will continue to do by his spirit, and they're greater in the sense that they're expanding the impact of Christ's ministry. It's not, a, it's not as if Christ ascended and stopped ministering, and now it's all up to us. Christ continues to do the work that he began. Right? It's the ongoing work of his ministry. In fact, that's how Acts opens uh, the book of Acts. We can get there. In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so the implication is that this book, Acts, is what he's continuing to do and teach through his apostles. Again, so the impact of Jesus' ministry extends to all. Um, all believers who are filled by the Holy Spirit. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this brief passage here that's a simple reminder to us at an important time where many are open to hearing the message of the gospel because it's blared through their radios and even by secular artists who simply are making money from the, the season. And yet, there's some truth as they declare Christ's birth, as they declare the, the meaning of Christ's birth, if they use scripture at all, and to speak of the, the good news of great joy. And so, Lord, help us to take advantage of this season and to be bold in declaring that truth to others. Lord, help us to have eyes to see the opportunities around us, and open doors for us that we might declare the gospel truth. Lord, move us even now as we consider this text. Give us eyes to see this truth and ears to hear it and hearts that are softened by your Spirit to do what you've called us to, that we would not just be hearers of your word but doers as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So read with me Luke Chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Amen. This is God's holy word. 
Well, we'll look here at this passage in, um, in four sections, looking at verses 1 and 2, we consider their mission, the mission that Jesus gives to them. This is maybe interesting for, for some of you who, who have always thought about the three years of Jesus' ministry like I did. It starts off by saying, and he called the 12 together. It would, it would seem to suggest that they were not always together, right? that they didn't simply stay in the same place at, at all time throughout that th- the three years of ministry. I think that's, that's how I've always envisioned them as a traveling group, and I think obviously they did spend the bulk of their time together, but, but at this point, he has to call them together in order to give them a mission. It's a critical mission that involves casting out demons, healing sickness, and preaching the kingdom of God. And preaching about the kingdom of God would refer to really God's sovereignty over every sphere. Right? It's, it's a challenge for us. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 kind of speaks of, of the scope of God's kingdom. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. So whether you eat or drink... Not, not things or activities that we typically think as being heavy spiritual activities, right? things that we would typically do without thinking. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Literally everything we do can be done with God in mind, can be done for his glory. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And so his ministry extended, Paul's ministry extended into everything he did, to everyone he met. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Paul also writing says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So not only the things we do from the mundane to the great, but even our thoughts, everything we do, everything we think can be done for his glory. That's a reference to God's sovereignty, right? When we're preaching about the kingdom of God, we're preaching about his sovereignty over every possible sphere in our lives. And here it's linked directly to the gospel. Notice verse two says, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And then in verse 6, it says, they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel. It wasn't like they were disobedient. He said, preach the kingdom of God, and they preached the gospel. He's equating the two, right? He's saying this is, this is the gospel, preaching the kingdom of God, preaching God's sovereignty. And so this mission, it's not anything new in terms of activities. As we've been making our way through Luke, we've come across this very thing, right? Casting out demons, healing sickness, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God even, using that same language. We've seen it multiple times. But what makes this passage unique is that it's now the apostles themselves who are doing that work. Jesus not only possessed great power, he also granted power. He granted them the authority to do the work that he had been doing. And so all disciples are called to show compassion. We may not have the, the gift of healing today. 
I don't believe those miraculous gifts extend beyond the apostolic age. But we're still called to show compassion. We're still called to preach, to proclaim the gospel. And we should also remain on guard. Although I have not had the experience of casting out any demons, I do think we are to be on guard about the devil and his tactics. Right? He is waging a war against Christ and his kingdom. And yet we can be confident, right? Because we have been granted the power and authority that Christ has displayed throughout this gospel, this miraculous power to bring healing, to bring gospel truth into the lives of those who have rejected it, but who will be transformed by the work of the Spirit. So we can be confident and and even excited about that work. Think about being in the shoes of the apostles as he's telling them what they're about to do. In fact, Mark tells us he sends them out in pairs, sends them out two by two to do this work. I mean, they would have been excited, maybe a little nervous about what they were going to encounter, but there would have been this wonder, this amazement that Christ was involving them in the work that they have been witnessing throughout his ministry. It's a reminder here that, that um, really what he has given them, the power to do, ultimately leads to the third task, which is the primary and important one. It's to preach. Right? He gives them that authority and that power as a platform for the message that they had. Uh, We never want to minimize the priority of preaching as a means of grace, to overemphasize some emotional experience, right? We want to focus on the priority of preaching, which is emotional, which does involve our emotions. You know, it it should involve our, our response in that way. But oftentimes, Churches like to separate these things, right? They, they kind of put mercy ministry into its own category or they put um, miracles, miracle working, healing into its own category. They'll have a, a healing service, right? That's all about coming and, and getting healed. So they won't really preach at that kind of service. But, but here and throughout the Gospels and throughout Acts, anytime there was healing, there was preaching. There was proclamation of the the truth. That was the priority, in fact. The healing took place so that the door would be opened for the message of the gospel. And so miracles and mercy should never be separated from the word of God. I do want to point out a couple of things here. As we consider the biblical qualifications of apostleship, maybe you've you've heard this before. There's there's three general... um, qualifications. One is that they are a disciple of Jesus, personally, right? That they had been discipled by Jesus, that they are a witness of his resurrection. Not that they actually saw him rise, but they saw the resurrected Christ. And then third, that they were sent by Jesus. So that's the the biblical qualifications of apostleship. Apostles basically are, are chosen and empowered by Christ personally. But that does raise the question about the legitimacy of someone like Matthias 
or even Paul. Right? We wonder, how, how do they fit into those qualifications? And in fact, for Paul, he had to defend his apostolic authority. However, both Paul and Matthias were accepted by all of the undisputed apostles without any reservation. Right? And so unless we had that kind of authority today, we, we should assume that the apostolic office does, does not exist in our modern day and age. Nothing would suggest as well that Judas was any less successful. I think as you think about these 12 that he's working alongside, that he's prepared and trained and then sent out, one of them was Judas. One of them was given the authority to heal, to cast out demons, and even to preach the gospel truth. And there's no indication that his ministry was any less successful. It's a, it's a warning to those who would participate in the activities of the church without faith. Because right, apart from Christ's divine empowerment, our ministry efforts are entirely fruitless. But everything must be done by faith. Right, if it's going to be personally fruitful. So their ministry was clear. And uh, their resources are also evident. In verse 3, he says, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. So Jesus sent out his apostles without instruction, or, or he sent them out with instruction to take nothing but the clothes on their back. Not even take a layer of, of clothing, right? You should have one tunic. Why is he so strict? Well, one, it would be nearly impossible for them to be distracted by some other task, some other responsibility, some inferior thing that they could, that they could do. Or, right? they, were, they, were, they were called to travel light, to go, into, go throughout Galilee with nothing. That would have set them apart from, from false teachers who, had, who, have, who would have been known for extorting people, going around and collecting money and living extravagantly. It would have set them apart from that. But it also points to the significance that, that they really needed nothing beyond themselves and their message, right? That the gospel message is adequate for the work God has called us to. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. They were to depend upon the hospitality of strangers. They couldn't bring their own resources to take care of themselves. They had to depend upon others. So that in itself encouraged those who were listening to immediately apply the grace that they had received to those who brought that truth to them. Right? We've seen this over and over again, this connection between hospitality and evangelism. They, they needed nothing but themselves and their message. The gospel is, is the power of God unto salvation. They were to depend upon the hospitality of strangers, and their simple living would have been nothing like the false teachers who traveled around extorting people. And so we say, well, is that supposed to be normative? Is that supposed to be how we're to live today? 
Should all missionaries, should all pastors follow these guidelines? Well, frankly, it's not even normative for these apostles. This was a unique calling for them. They were to travel light, which emphasized the very short-term nature. Later on in, in Luke chapter 22, he'll actually encourage them to bring along their money bag. Um, ch- chapter 22, verses 35 through 38. And he said to them, when I sent you, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, there are two swords, and he said, it is enough. So... Radically different instructions there, given to the same people. He, in fact, references this passage saying, remember when I sent you out with nothing? Did you lack anything? No. Well, now I'm telling you to to take it, to have it with you, because you're going to need it, because the journey is long. The calling that I've given you is for the rest of your life. And so the passage is clearly not, this particular passage is clearly not prescribing universal principles for all evangelism. Um, in fact, Mark tells us, and there's a little bit of a discrepancy here, because in Mark 6, 8, we read that, that they were encouraged to take a staff. And the question is, what, what kind of staff was it? Was it a traveler's staff? That seems to be the most likely, that it would have been sort of like a cane to help them as they were walking along terrain that's difficult. Um, some suggest it might have been a rod, and so to take it along so that they could uh, defend themselves if they needed uh, but really, there's, there's not a good solution to the problem. However, both passages cl- very clearly emphasize um, simple living. Uh, despite the, the minor discrepancy about whether or not they could take a staff with them, the idea was they, they needed to trust that God, was going to, that God had given them um, a message to share, and they did not need resources in order to share that message. Well, I think there is a principle here that we can take from this into our modern day and age, and that would be that sometimes our modern amenities do get in the way of our gospel message. It can be a hindrance to the gospel witness, its desire to, to live at a, at a certain level or a certain quality of life. And so when we're completely self-sufficient, in fact, we lack the need to interact with others. When you have everything in the fridge, why do you need to ask your neighbor for an egg? Why do you need to depend on anyone else? But when you depend on others, it gives them an opportunity to share, and it opens a door to be a light. And so again, uh, their resources were limited, but their calling was clear. And I think we also should consider the things that we invest our resources in, right? Where we invest our treasure does reveal our commitments. And the priority in this passage is clear that it's, it's to the preaching of God's word, 
And so we should be heavily invested in Christ's kingdom work. That should be applied to our, in, our own individual lives, our families, our church, ministries, um, presbyteries, denominations. I think it's a, it's a healthy evaluation where we use our resources, how much of those resources are going towards the preaching of the gospel. Because if the church isn't supporting the preaching of the gospel, no one else is going to. There's a lot of really good work that can be done by people who don't believe in God, right? that, that make this world a, a better place, a safer place, a place where, where resources are needed, where, where food is needed, where water, clean water is needed, right? And yet, if the church is not supporting church plants or gospel preaching ministries, those will die, right? Those, those will, will not be upheld by the watching world. But we know they won't die. We know that God is faithful, that God is going to, to raise up his church to continue that work that he's called them to. So he goes on from there to speak of the witness, their witness in verses five, four and five, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And what, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. First of all, the principle is to be content with the hospitality that you're offered. If a home receives you, accept it. Don't go looking for a better place. Don't start searching hotel.com for a better better amenities. They were to be content with the hospitality they received. And in Acts, we saw this frequent link, again, to, between evangelism and hospitality. It's as if receiving the truth by faith bears witness in receiving the truth teller. So receiving the Christian into their home would have illustrated their receiving Christ as Savior. It was, it was how they exemplified their faith. They were also instructed to depart from whoever rejected them by shaking the dust off their feet. And what does that mean? Well, it's, this was, would have been some uh, kind of a, a common Jewish practice when they were traveling and going through a, uh, a region that was not Jewish. When they got back into their own region, they would shake the dust off their feet as if it were unclean to, to not bring their pollution into the covenant community. And so essentially what they're saying here, as you go out throughout Galilee into a Jewish community, as you proclaim the gospel into these Jewish communities, shake the dust off your feet if they reject you. Treat them like a heathen. Treat them like a Gentile. You actually see this in, um, in Acts chapter 13, verses 50 and 51, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Again, this was a Jewish district. But Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And so they shake the dust off their feet, essentially declaring judgment upon them. It's a, it's a warning that judgment is coming if they remain 
in their state of rejection and rebellion. It's not a declaration of good riddance, like, who cares about you? I'm done with you. I wipe my hands clean of you or something like that. It's, it's, it's sort of a, a call to repent. It's a sign of their desire to see them change. Well, this idea, this idea of receiving the hospitality that's offered and, and shaking the dust off your feet when you're rejected, I think it's, it's helpful for us to see that we can place too much responsibility upon ourselves to be convincing, right? To be the one in evangelistic opportunities, uh, to have the right arguments, to have all the right answers, and instead of trusting in the Spirit's work of drawing someone, we feel like, well, you know what, I, I really blew that one. I didn't, have, I didn't, didn't know the, the verse to quote, or I didn't have the, the best response to their questions. And this is a reminder here that if the Spirit is at work, they'll be receptive. Right? Instead of trying to drum up an interest in the gospel... We can simply trust where the Spirit leads. Starting to read it um, by Rico Tice, Honest Evangelism, How to Talk About Jesus Even When It's Tough. It's short. He's the, he's, um, the creator of Christianity Explored, which I, I really like. Um, for its, its approach, it's, it's not a sleight-of-hand approach to evangelism, right? You just, if you're interested in exploring Christianity, come and, and, and consider what Christianity has to say. Well, in this little book, he says, our job is not to convert people. It's to witness to Christ. Conversion isn't the mark of a successful witness. Witnessing is. Think about that. We look at our efforts and we say, I'm just not good. I'm not gifted at this. I, you know, I don't see a whole lot of converts... That's not how we should be looking at it. Right? That's not a successful witness. Being a witness is successful. Think about a courtroom. Witnesses are there to tell the truth. That's successful witness. If the jury doesn't believe them, that's not their fault or their failure. You have not failed if you explain the gospel and are rejected. You have failed if you don't try. I think that's a, a good reminder right, that, that we're, not, we're not called to do this because, because God needs our expertise. We're called to do it because God wants to use us. He wants to invite us into the privilege of being a witness for him, right, of, of participating in his kingdom-building work. So this is, in one sense, biblical evidence for door-to-door evangelism. And I know we probably don't want to partake in, in that kind of activity because we associate it with what the cults oftentimes do. And certainly it's not the only way to evangelize, but we shouldn't throw it out altogether. Right? God can and does use many means to bring people into the kingdom. And lastly, in verse 6, we see that they respond by obeying. They departed and they went out throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So again, the apostles had to trust in the power and authority of Jesus that he had given them. 
Jesus is testing them to see if they can follow him without seeing him. Every other time that they'd gone out, Jesus was with them. And Jesus was primarily doing the work. They're simply witnessing and watching, maybe supporting him. But they're watching him do the work. Now Jesus has called them out to do the work. And this is training. This is preparation because in Acts 1.8, we see the resurrected Christ will send them out again. Right? He'll tell them to wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And as that happens in Acts 2, they are then empowered to do this work. So Mark informs us that they went out in pairs. They were spreading throughout the region of Galilee. And notice they're not testing the soil beforehand. We consider the parable of the, the four soils. They're simply going out everywhere. They're not going where they, they think will be most successful. They're not doing, running statistics for the region and saying, well, that one's a little more affluent. They'll probably have a, a greater interest. Right? They're simply taking the word everywhere. And so evangelism is not restricted to the places that we feel comfortable. And I, I love the fact that Spurgeon was converted under the preaching of a layman in a small chapel. He, he found his way into a small chapel under the preaching of someone who wasn't even ordained, and that is how God converted him. We, we should have confidence that God's message can be just as powerful through a faithful and willing servant than it is through some incredible gospel preacher. We also see their evangelism was not accompanied or, or was accompanied by compassionate healing. They departed and went out throughout the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So it was not preaching alone. It wasn't healing alone. It was both that made for an effective campaign. And so we, we do want to look for ways to be compassionate. We just don't want to separate that compassion from the gospel message. So as we close, I could summarize it by saying this. Apostolic evangelism required divine empowerment and human hospitality. It required divine empowerment, but also God used human hospitality. The church would do well to recover these qualities once again, as we read, or as we consider this morning in, in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, where we considered uh, that passage on, on love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We might be the most gifted preachers in this city. But if we do not have love, if we do not have compassion, then we're nothing more than a clanging symbol. And so Jesus was and still is concerned with healing body and soul. So let's look to him for him to continue that work in us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture of apostolic evangelism. We see their need, their dependence upon Christ and his empowering for their ministry. We also see the way you utilize humans in the work as they had to show hospitality to those who were proclaiming the truth. 
those who are proclaiming the gospel. Lord, it's easy for us to lose sight of both of those. So may this reminder give us confidence once again. And as we have opportunities throughout the week, Lord, help us to trust in the Spirit's leading. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is, Take my life and let it be.